Hello there. Welcome back to my show. I'm Father Roderick, podcasting at the end of a very busy week, but also a week in which I've done a lot, got a lot of things done, except for the important stuff, but I guess we've all been there. Sometimes you, you wonder where time goes when you have to work. This episode is brought to you thanks to my patrons over at patreon.com slash fatherodrick. You know the drill. If you want to listen to another show every week that I record as a thank you for my supporters, then take a look at fatherodrick.com slash... No, actually, well, yes, take a look at fatherodrick.com as well, but also patreon.com slash fatherodrick. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. I should have Japan in this jingle because that's where a lot of action is happening right now. Of course, the start of the Olympics, the opening ceremony, has been aired all over the world. And because Japan is, of course, in a, in a weird time zone, at least weird if you don't live there, um, for some people, they had to wake up very early in the morning to watch it live. Here in the Netherlands, we saw it around noon, I think. And uh, some people will have to watch it after, after the fact. Um, lots of concerns still. Uh, a number of athletes, despite everything they did to prevent it, have still been infected with the Delta variant of the coronavirus, which, of course, is, you know, it's already a big deal when you get infected, when you get sick. But it's even worse if you've trained for for maybe a lifetime, and and this is your only chance to participate in in the Olympics, and then you get knocked out by that virus. Despite everything you did to prevent it, it it must be heartbreaking. Um, and well, thankfully, uh, a, a lot of other athletes will still be able to compete, and um, and hopefully. Hopefully, they can keep things under control. It's worrisome, but I. And the, on the other hand, I think that people really, really enjoy watching some sports right now uh, because it it kind of takes your mind away from all the worries. And we've had another tough year for so many people. So sports, and in my case, it's not just sports; it's also video games, and we're watching TV shows, Star Wars, uh, Marvel, anything, uh, reading books. I, I appreciate all these different ways in which you can kind of step away from the grim reality for a while. I appreciate it so much more than I ever did um, because, well, we all need a, a bit of a, a change sometimes and, 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 and dream about a different world and, you know, have some hope or, or find some hope in these stories that we tell each other. This too shall pass, Right. That's what I keep telling myself. This too shall pass. Speaking of um, of movies, I have a wonderful movie that I wanted to review here on the show. I do not like movies. They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. So I finally got to see this Pixar movie that I had been wanting to see for a long time, but just I just didn't find the time. And so, as they say, you don't find time. 
you make time. So I made time. I, I pushed away some stuff in my calendar and I sat down and I was like, I haven't seen a movie in, in five weeks now, maybe even more. And I've, I've seen a little bit of, of Marvel. I've seen a few episodes of The Bad Batch and I've just been working and, and being busy with the uh, renovations of the rectory. And before you know it, summer is going to be over. And I, I told myself, you know, in a certain way, watching a movie is still work-related because then I have something to talk about here on the show. So I finally watched Luca. And here's the audio from the trailer. What you hear is this sea monster who wants to get out of the sea. (laughs) We do not go anywhere near the surface. Got it? Everything good is above the surface. Walking. Air. (gasps) The sky. Clouds. The sun. Whoa, don't look at it. Just kidding. Definitely look at it. (laughs) Have you ever gone to the human town? Yeah. (laughs) I'm kind of an expert. Lucky today. Hmm? Hey, leave them alone. Hop on. Go start a club for losers. My name is Giulia Marcovaldo. We underdogs have to look out for each other. What's under the dogs? <laughs> this is my dad. What do you think he kills with those? Anything that swims. a chance to try. <laughs> Something's fishy with you two. This is too dangerous. Lucius! <gasps> I know your problem. You got a Bruno in your head. A Bruno? Say, silencio Bruno. Silencio Bruno. Louder. Silencio Bruno. Silencio Bruno. Silencio Bruno. Silencio Bruno. Can you still hear him? Nope, just you. Good. Now hang on. You do it now. Just say the thing. What's wrong with you, stupido? <gasps> this was such a fun movie. It was the. It's a perfect summer movie. It and what I loved about Luca is how incredibly Italian it is. And while I was watching it, I recognized so many things. Of course, it's full of cliches and tropes and and things that you associate with Italy. And at first I was like, hmm, I wonder what Italians think of this movie. And then I realized, well, wait a minute. This movie is made by an Italian. It's an Italian director. This is his first movie, or the first movie that he directs for Pixar. He's been in, in the United States since the age of 20, I think. So he grew up in Italy, uh, actually, in I think, in the area where the movie takes place. So he's a genuine Italian. He knows the Italian culture. He knows how, how 
Italians, you know, would react in, in, in all these situations. And that is why the movie is so funny and so relatable. And I was, I was just stunned to see how much they got right. The, the, the various reactions, the, the, the hand movements. Unbelievable. It's so Italian. Uh, but also the funny thing, like, you know that here at the rectory, uh, one of the students that lives here or, uh, is, is Luigi. Luigi is uh, from a good Catholic family, so they don't swear, at least not in public. And instead, he, he makes up swear words. So when he's frustrated, he says something like fischia, which means basically uh, a little uh, flute. Uh, so it doesn't mean anything, but it sounds kind of like a swear word, like, like fischia. Uh, it's like, my gosh, uh, or, uh, well, I don't know. There, there are lots of English equivalents uh, for people who, who don't want to use God's name in vain, etc. So Italians apparently sometimes also do that. And in this movie, they have a ton of these, these, these well, not really swear words, but they, they use Italian cheeses and then they turn them into saints. So instead of saying, I don't know what kind of bad word, uh, the girl in the, in the, in the, in the story says, uh, Oh, Santo Pecorino. Pecorino is sheep's cheese. Like it doesn't mean, I don't think anyone uses that, but I thought it was so brilliant. And then it's, uh, uh, Santa Mozzarella, but what do you do? <laughs> it's like, wow, I'm going to, I'm going to take those swear words and, and use them because they're so cute. And yet they're super effective when you're, when you're frustrated. Oh, my Santo Pecorino. It sounds like something really serious, but it's just, you know, saints, sheep's, sheep's, Cheese. Try say that. Saints, sheep, cheese. Try say that ten times. Saint, saint, sheep, sheep's cheese. Saint, sheep's cheese. <laughs> Can't do it. <laughs> Santa mozzarella. It's even better. Um, but the uh, uh, the movie has a has a fantastic story. It is actually a familiar story. It, it, it at least the first. Part of the story is very similar to The Little Mermaid. Um, she, too, lived under the sea, uh, had some, you know, a strict father who didn't want her to go far from home, uh, so quite controlling. And then she, of course, being a teenager, she wants to go up there, you know, and walk on on the on the roads with, what do you call them, feet uh, up where they are, <laughs> etc. Um, this movie... Similar story, in this case, it's Luca, who is a sea monster, very, you know, kind, friendly sea monster, but nevertheless regarded by the, 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 the land people as dangerous creatures. And so he, um, he, he's curious about the world out there, up there, uh, and at the same time, he constantly self-sabotages. And, and that is where it is a little bit different from The Little Mermaid. Um, Luca is... Is is a mostly a prisoner of what he tells himself. You know, I can't do that. I I, I, I shouldn't do that. A bit like you know Luke Skywalker when when he's talking to Obi Wan Kenobi. You know, I I can't come with you. My uncle wants me to be here for the harvest, etc. Uh, so it's and we do that all the time as well. It's very relatable. Uh, how often did you tell yourself, Yeah, I'm not even going to try. I'm probably going to fail. You know, I. I'm an imposter. I I can't possibly pretend knowing anything or, or doing anything. Um, who am I? And, and the funny thing is, in an interview, the director said actually, 
that character trait of Luca, of the main character, um, was something that he could relate to very much because as a first-time uh, director, he too really struggled with that imposter syndrome. I mean, you got to imagine that you're making a Pixar movie and you are making it in one of the hardest times for the entertainment industry. So a lot is weighing on your shoulders. This movie has to be a success. It's it, This is all about the continuity of Pixar and, and, and the Disney uh, uh the Disney Empire in in difficult times, so you cannot really afford to fail in in these hard times because well you, you don't really have the the box office to lean on, um, and so this 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 was published on 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 Disney Plus, and so uh, what the the task is to have people you know subscribe to to the service. Um, Whereas normally, if this would be just a theatrical release, people would go see it anyway because it's Pixar. You know, you know that you're going to get something good. Whereas with 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 on demand, you still have to wait and see if people are going to watch this. Plus, it's summertime, so in in large parts of the world, people are not watching movies right now. Um, they want to be outside, or well, maybe not if they have to stay inside in a lockdown. But still, so um, and he he felt that pressure very much, and so. Uh, when when Luca is constantly uh, telling himself, I, I I can't I can't go to the surface. I what are my parents going to say? Um, he then meets this other guy who's also a sea monster, um, who is free as a bird, um, doesn't really have parents anymore, and is this kind of archetypical friend that maybe you all also had when you were young, who is much more daring than you. Uh, and, and, and always takes the lead and you're like, oh my gosh, <gasps> is he really doing that? I, I, I don't, I can't do that. I, I mean, I, I had a number of friends like that who were, I always considered to be so much cooler than I was. And I was always a little bit like, yeah, I don't know. I, don't, I, I kind of reveled in this, this loser role and considered myself uh, as when I was young, uh, definitely a, a bit of a loser, a bit of a nerd. And the, the... Uh, this this character trait for Luca becomes very problematic once he decides to partake in a in a big uh, kind of a triathlon. But then it's um, it's an Italian triathlon, so this is about swimming, biking, and eating pasta. That's the third sport. <laughs> and he's like, I can't do this. And then the other guy, you heard that in the trailer. He's like, but. When, the moment you think, I can't do something, the, when you hear that inner voice, tell him, you know, silencio, silence, Bruno. Silencio, Bruno. And Luca is like, well, who's Bruno? And Bruno is that voice in your head. Just give him a name and then you can control him. Silencio, Bruno. And this is an ongoing theme in the movie where, where every time... Luca doubts himself or doesn't think he's worthy or that he can't do something or, or he's afraid of losing what he has instead of daring to step outside of his little prison. Um, he can only do it because he says, you know, silencio, Bruno. I don't want to listen to this inner voice. That I could so relate to. And even though it's it's wrapped in a very fun, lighthearted uh, very Italian movie. This is something that I think we can all learn from. It's you know, you are not your inner voice, 
And, and sometimes your inner voice is the voice of your parents or the voice of a teacher or the voice of a, uh, an abusive boyfriend or whatever. Um, but it, it, it takes time and it takes patience to truly listen to yourself or even better, to listen to, to God's voice. Uh, we often kind of confuse God's voice with the voice of other people. And then we project onto God what actually other pe people did to us. Like this is very, I had a conversation this weekend with uh, a colleague priest who did his doctorate studies on um, uh, the metaphors that people use for God and for the church. And, and his thesis was the metaphors that you use, or the imagery that you use to, to talk about God, to talk about your faith, to talk about the church, actually it's more than just a symbol. It impacts the choices you make. It will determine the way you actually, you know, for instance, the church. How do you see the church? Is the church like a societas perfecta, as they call it in Latin? So is it, a, is it supposed to be a perfect mini-society, something that can rival the other, you know, kingdoms of the world? Um, if, if that's your image, if, and, and this has been the case throughout in, in history um, for, for a, a certain certain. Uh, theologians or, or bishops or even popes, the church was supposed to be this perfect society. It doesn't need to be a big group of people as long as it's perfect. Well, if you have that idea of perfection as your image, then you will make certain choices. First of all, you'll be probably very strict on yourself. You know, you have to be perfect. Otherwise, you're not part, you're not welcome in the church. Uh, but you may also project that onto other people. You know, like you see this certain this rigidity sometimes uh, towards others. That is oftentimes a reflection of the rigidity that people have towards themselves. It's very hard to treat someone else with patience if you don't have patience for yourself. That is, I think, why Jesus says, "Love your neighbor as you love yourself." If you cannot love yourself, it's very hard to love someone else. And it's not egotistical or whatever to love yourself. It's a commandment. But it's all about having patience, having... So another image for the church, uh, this priest said, is, for instance, the church as um, the people of God, which was very popular in the, in the 60s and 70s. Well, if, if, if the church is this group of people that is walking with the Lord, then, then you know, being a church is being on the road and, and sometimes taking a detour. And, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's, about the, it's about the journey, not about the goal, you know? So that too... Makes it you 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 make different choices. Um, the uh, the image that um, uh, Pope Francis uses a lot is um, the church as a field hospital, and you kind of can picture it. It's like this tent, you know. Think First World War. It's not really at the front line, but it is right behind it. So when people are getting hurt, they can fall back and and be welcomed in those tents, and they will be taken care of. Their wounds be, will be taken care of. They will be comforted. There will be love and care. And and so if you use that image for the church, then it's kind of obvious that the church is also for the broken people and the people that got hurt and the people that are, you know, maybe lost an eye or an arm or, 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 or a hand. Um, but, but the church is there for the broken people. And it's not just a, a club of perfect people that are only accessible for, for the people that are perfect. So for me, that was a, a pretty eye-opening conversation. I was like, wow, that is true. The, the images are not interchangeable. They do... 
they do really influence the choices that you make. And that is, I think, why it's good that there are so many different images for the church. Just like that you can have many different images and expressions of love because you cannot really capture love in one definition. If you can capture it in one description or definition, it's probably not love. Just as if you can define who God is and explain who he is, then you're probably not talking about God. And the same is true about the church. You know, the church is so has so many different aspects because it's a it's a it's a church made of of people with the son of god as its head <laughs> so obviously there is part of the church that you cannot truly define you can only approximate it now, long story short to to relate this to luca you are not your thoughts but the way you talk about yourself the, 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 the names you use for your inner voice, that will determine whether you will listen to it or not. And so the Silencio Bruno, it's, it's a very funny little quirk, like a running gag that returns time and again. But I think it's very profound. This is something that we should be aware of ourselves as well. You know, if we are maybe too strict with ourselves or too, we lack mercy for others, ask yourself, who is this Bruno talking to me? You know, who is telling me to behave like that? And maybe I should tell that person, you know, silencio, Bruno. <laughs> Another very, very cool thing is the uh, about Luca is um, it, it, just the color, the, the, the colors, the, the vibrancy, the music. This, this has the fa- most fantastic sunshine summery soundtrack that, that you can imagine it's full of these you know classic italian summer songs um it's an homage to kind of the the, the, the romantic italy uh that you saw in the, these these uh movies with gregory packets etc uh, and so it's all about vespas little cute villages the village that is actually used as a decor for most of the story, is a real village. It, it exists for real. Just as the pasta, that there's a lot of eating in a movie as well. Very Italian. <laughs> so it's a lot of pasta because it's part of the, of the, the big, you know, triathlon, of course. All the pasta recipes that you see are genuine, real Italian recipes. And there's actually uh, a video that you can look for. I'll post it in the show notes where the director is commenting on recipes uh, that have been filmed for him because he's in, 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 you know, behind his webcam in the United States. Uh, but then they actually went to the villages that uh, have inspired the locations for the movie and they asked the mamas, the nonnas, you know, the grandmothers and the mothers to prepare those dishes. And then he is like salivating behind his webcam. He's like, oh, my, this is so painful to watch this beautiful dish. And I cannot reach through the webcam and eat it myself. Oh, it's, uh, it's uh, painful. <laughs> but it's so well done. And I was like watching this movie before dinner time. And I got so hungry. And and, and, and the main pasta recipe the trenetta al pesto trenetta is a type of spaghetti but it's flat and it's not as chunky as the tagliatelle so it's 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 a it's a type of pasta that you can't really buy anywhere at least i haven't seen it in the netherlands so you have to order it online and it's super expensive but of course normally in italy you would you'd probably just make it yourself but then it's combined with pesto with a nice pesto sauce pesto sauce and with um chunks of potato which is kind of weird and in green beans but when you see it being prepared in the kitchen during in the movie this is an animated movie 
they actually really do the preparation. So you see the girl making the pe- the pesto sauce, and and she's doing it the proper way. It's like I love these details. It is so. If you've ever been to Italy. You have to watch this movie. If you are Italian yourself, go watch the movie. Tell me what you thought. Um, I, I think you're going to love it. And uh, and if you've never been to Italy, go watch that movie and you will want to go to Italy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Even the bad guy is so quintessential Italian and so funny and, and, and archetype. I've, I've seen guys like that. <laughs> Um, that was the only thing that I missed in the movie is like the motivation for the bad guy to be bad. He's just very vain. But I kind of expected him there to there to be more to his story that we kind of learn why he's behaving like that. They don't, and and probably that's just me being so you know trained by Disney and Pixar to always think about well, but what motivates the bad guys, and that there's always a story behind the story. No one is behaving. No one is just bad for for badness' sakes. There's always a but in in this case, it's just a pretty black and white situation where you've got the good guys and then you've got the the bad guy and then you've got all the people that still have to learn to open their minds and you know be more friendly towards the sea monster. So it's a very generic message about inclusion and uh, you know looking beyond the appearances and let letting go of your fear. But because it's in a certain way very cliche, it's still... Clichés are there for a reason, right? It's because we often see these situations. And and so I think for definitely for kids, for families, this is a wonderful movie. And I, I also thought that the parents were uh, portrayed in a very nuanced way. It's not just, you know, the grumpy father who doesn't want uh, the little mermaid to go to the surface and then... There's this fear. No, there's actually genuine love, and you see the struggle of the parents between being good custodians of their kid, and then at the same time, this they know there's this ultimate fight fatality where you have to let go of your child. You cannot protect them forever. Um, and uh, I thought it was done in a in a very good way. You see, the parents also fail at that. So you, you got these really nice nuanced fathers and mothers so i think also for parents this is probably a good movie to reflect upon your own your own behavior towards your children and the conundrum sometimes between them. do i protect or do i let go do i trust or do i discipline <laughs> that sort of stuff plus there's the wacky uncle which is great and he returns after the credits so for those of you that have already watched this and you have missed the the post credit sequence it's funny you got to see it. <laughs> All right, let's move on. <laughs> Catholics rock. It's time to visit the peculiar bunch. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? Today I do want to talk a little bit more about uh, the document Tradiciones Custodis, the motu proprio of Pope Francis. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than blockbuster video. 
And it looks like I've lost my online viewers again. This is the ongoing frustration of living here at the rectory. The internet is so unstable. So no matter what I do, uh, I'm on a wired internet connection. I keep losing my folks after about 10 minutes. And it's usually when I'm in the middle of a review and then I see that the chat room stays active. It's just that the video connection breaks and then people are like, well, where did he go? He was just talking about Silencio. Silencio, what? What is going on? And then it, I can't even go live right away. Normally I would just restart the stream, but then it, it, it actually... Uh, uh, refuses to go back online because apparently there's there are still some processes running in the background. It, ugh, I can't wait to move to the new rectory where I will have fiber internet and it will be so much better than this this wonky stuff here. Cable internet, what a disaster! Anyway. Letting go, trying to let go. I hope hope that uh, uh, the online audience will be back in a few minutes. I finally be able to restart the stream. And I'm sorry that this is a recurring uh, thing on 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 for for those of you that are just listening to the audio. Um, but it's it's just kind of part of my life right now. The internet is so unreliable, and I it makes me appreciate a stable internet connection so much more. And I never thought that I'd be here for more than a few weeks. So. It's almost half a year now. Anyway, so uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Tradiciones Custodis, which is the motu proprio uh, that Pope Francis published uh, more than a week ago about the um, the extraordinary form of the Mass. That is how we called it up until this moment. So it is uh, sometimes called the Latin Mass, which is actually technically not the right term because the uh, the liturgy, kind of the normal liturgy that we celebrate, it can also be celebrated in, in Latin. Actually, I do that all the time. So, um, or, or some people will make the distinction between the old mass and the new mass. Now, for those of you that are completely unfamiliar with the Catholic tradition, uh, when people talk about the old mass or the extraordinary form or the Latin mass, they, what they mean is actually um, the, the liturgy, that was standard liturgy in the church for a number of centuries after the Council of Trent, all the way up until the 70s when um, John, uh, Pope John XXIII started the Second Vatican Council. And during the Second Vatican Council, which was completed under Pope Paul VI, the Council Fathers, the Council is like a big worldwide meeting of all the bishops and, and lots of theologians. And it was kind of an important moment in the history of the Catholic Church to recalibrate. Is this still working? And shouldn't we kind of maybe go back to the sources? This was also in a time that a lot of the theology... Uh, because of the big progress that was happening in the study studying of the church fathers and and kind of modern um, uh, uh, modern scientific uh, t um, how would you say that methods um, there was this whole new rediscovery of of the early centuries of the church and how the the, the early church celebrated liturgy and so the the, the liturgy that became standard since the Council of Trent, um, the, the Council of Trent in itself was also uh, a, a reaction to the situation before that. Um, and that is the, the... So the Council of Trent started in 1545 and it took about 20 years. And before that, that was a huge 
diversity in, in, in rites and different forms of liturgy. And, and some were uh, um, quite traditional and others were much more localized. But there was a, there was a problem that the, the quality was uneven. The, um, and there was also sometimes people used their rites, their, their particular uh, liturgical tradition as a, a way to, to distinguish themselves from other parts of the church. And it was kind of this rivalry, you know, our rite is better than your rite, etc. It's very human behavior. You see that um, not just in, 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 in faith or in religion. You see that everywhere. We have a tendency to always make our own experience and our, what we like or what we are used to, we make that an absolute and we condemn uh, and sometimes even fight what, what is different from us. Well, the Council of Trent wanted to unify, bring more unity in, in the church through the liturgy. And this comes from a very deep understanding of what liturgy does. Liturgy is, is often misunderstood as, um, uh, sometimes as uh, something that is fixed and absolute and is therefore God. Now, of course, liturgy, it's part of worship. You know, it's, our, it's the way in which we... Um, in which we express our relationship with God. At the same time, when I say we, I don't mean we as you and I and a few of our you know, like-minded people. No, we as a church, we as the bride of Christ. So it is a, it's a communal response to the love that God gave us. That is what liturgy is. It's, it's, a, it's our reply. So it's, liturgy in itself is not something that is going to change God or make him feel good. Or It's not like God is there looking and like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're singing the kumbaya. I, now, that my, now my day is ruined. Oh, come here. This is, uh, <laughs> do you see that, Jesus? They, they sing the kumbaya. This is terrible. Ah. I hate these people. I wish they would just sing in Latin. No, of course, it doesn't work like that. God is does not change. He's always the same and has always been the same. So the expression matters for us. It is liturgy is there for us, but not in the sense that it is for us egotistically, you know, God out of the picture. That that is a, if you do if you consider liturgy to be just self-expression, and it's all about that I can create, you know, bring in my creativity and its self-expression. Then God is out of the picture, and that leads inevitably to 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 uh, to horrible liturgy and to something that is completely, you know, misaligned with what liturgy is supposed to do. So liturgy is for us, but it is for to help us build our relationship with God. And what you pray is what you believe. The, the prayer is helping you understand. It's helping you believe. It's helping to express yourself in the tradition of the church. And to so that faith is not just your individual self-expression, but it's something communal that we all share. And that binds us together because we speak the same language. And we've learned to... to 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 form our relationship, to build our relationship based on on the experience of all these generations before us, and so in the, when when Vatican II was kind of restyling the liturgy, coming up with this new way of uh, uh, celebrating Mass and also the other sacraments, what they did is they they used a lot of the new research that was available at the time 
from the early centuries. And a lot of the superfluous gestures and sometimes the repetition that was part of the liturgy fr- f- uh, that, that was uh, defined and unified during the Council of Trent, a lot of the extra um, superfluous fat was, was cut. And the, the, the main goal was to make the liturgy more transparent, simpler, and more beautiful, so less cluttered. So it was a bit of a maybe a bit minimalist in, in the sense that, you know, if, if you stay with the core, if you go back to what, for instance, the liturgical, the, the Eucharistic prayer, there is, the, I think it's Eucharistic prayer two and three, there are very, very close to texts that were used in the first few centuries. Whereas the first Eucharistic prayer, which was the only Eucharistic prayer since the Council of Trent, is much more, it's very, very uh, broad and, and, and it has a lot of different elements. It's, it's nice, but it is also, uh, it's a bit much for some people. So the, the council fathers, they were like, okay, well, we'll keep it, we'll keep it. But we're also, also going to give some other options to make it even simpler so that you can focus on, on, on the core and, and then it, the, 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 the simpler, it's like a bit like cooking, you know? Like if you want to make a good pasta... Don't add cream to everything. You don't have to add pecorino or or, or, or uh, other cheese on top of a of a dish that already has cheese in the sauce. So it's, a lot of the what makes what I what, what, the reason that I love Italian cuisine so much is that it is usually very simple, few ingredients, but the ingredients themselves have to be high quality, and that I think is where it went wrong in the sixties and seventies. Is that a lot of people confused simplicity and a certain uh, uh, focus on the essential with, oh, but that gives us room for for our self-expression, for creativity. And then they started to fill in the gaps with all sorts of nonsense. And I've, I've lived in the 70s and, and 80s. I grew up in those years and it was not pretty. And I can totally relate to the people that said, "Well, but this is not it. This is not the result that 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 we that, that we need right now." Um, there is a generation, of course, that that has been part of that renovation and a, the, the renewal of the liturgy, and you can't blame them for trying to think along with the church, but it still had to be purified. And I think we're now at the stage in the history of the church that we we want to go back to you know what is liturgy truly about? And this is not about me. This is about our relationship with God. But it's also more than just we just do what worked uh, for the Council of Trent because we live in different times. And so there's, I think, nothing inherently wrong with liturgy changing. It has always changed throughout the ages. You cannot fix it. Even the old mass was new at the time of the Council of Trent and scandalized a lot of people. It's like, why do we always, why do we all, all of a sudden have to do the same. Why can't we just keep our own tradition? And well, you see history repeating itself right now um, in, in, with this, this whole debate around uh, the uh, extraordinary form and the common form of the church, where, um, and again, for those of you that are not really familiar with the whole situation, I'll try to sketch it. Um, so John Paul II uh, had one really painful episode during his pontificate which he which made him suffer quite a bit and that was the uh the schism that happened when a french bishop uh, lefebvre decided to uh ordain his own priest without permission 
of, of the Holy See. And so he validly ordained a number of priests. He did not accept Vatican II. He was so opposed to all that renewal that took place that he wanted to, you know, create a flock around any everything until Vatican II. But the, the entire doctrine of the entire uh, fruit of, of the Second Vatican Council was something he abhorred. So he ordained priests without permission. He got excom- excommunicated. That created de facto a schism. And Pope John Paul II saw that a lot of people were still kind of nostalgic and, 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 and really loved that, that type of liturgy. But at the same time, he didn't want them to, to stay within the schism. He was like, well, maybe we can create opportunities and places where they can still because that liturgy means so much to them, where they can still celebrate according to that type of liturgy. And at the same time, we can embrace them, and, and, and they can also, if, if they accept the teachings of the Second Vatican Council, but still want to continue to celebrate according to that, uh, the, 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 the missile um, of, uh, of the Council of Trent that was, you know, uh, at, at, I think the, the last adaptation of that was under John the Twenty Third then we should allow that. And so he created a few possibilities, very limited, but still. Then Pope Benedict, uh, seeing that it did not end the schism, um, wanted to broaden it even more. His idea was, well, you know what? If we give every priest the opportunity to celebrate this Mass if he wants, if there are people anywhere, doesn't matter, let's kind of lower the threshold. And if it works for some people, then okay, that's fine. And, and, and maybe this can also help correct some of the unfortunate uh, 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 div- divergency, divergencies, the, the, let's, let's say the corruption, you could say, if you want to frame it that way, the corruption of, of the newer liturgy, where it, uh, it became only self-expression, and it also lost a, a lot of its beauty and its simplicity. Maybe these two different rites can be the expression of the same relationship, the same liturgical relationship that we, that we build with the Lord. Now, Pope Benedict at the time said very clearly, this is to be, to be reviewed. Um, if, if we notice that this is not uh, having the, the effect that we hope it will have, then we'll have to make some changes. So he announced that, but under his pontificate, it, uh, it was uh, you know, available. Basically, if I wanted to celebrate the Mass according to the, the older rite, then I didn't have to ask anyone for permission. And in some parishes, uh, priests would, uh, would, would sometimes also just you know, replace one of their masses, for instance, uh, in a parish with uh, um, the, uh, the extraordinary form. And um, so Pope Francis uh, has, uh, I think from the get-go, was more... Mm, more wary of the effects of uh, um, not so much the liturgy as such, but the way in which that liturgy was used by some by by some groups as almost as a weapon uh, to you know go, fall back in that old us versus them. You know, it's only the the ordus uh, the the ordus antiga or the, the the old mass, the Latin mass. That's a real mass, and the novus ordo. It was kind of poo pooed, you know. Ugh. You're only a real priest. I've had, a, you know, sometimes attacks 
uh, in, on Twitter and social media from people that really reason like that, unless you celebrate mass according to the old missal, unless you do that, you're not a real priest. And and that is something that I think that, that Pope Francis was, was very worried about. And of course, that kept being um, amplified by certain media. We all know this, that there there's a lot of polarization. This is something that is happening everywhere, but it, there's a concentration of this, I think, in the United States, in North America, mostly North, and mostly the United States. That, that I think it, even in Canada, it's probably uh, not as, not as um, uh, polarized, where um, a, 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 I think a very, very small minority of, of certain worried or, or angry Catholics started to really... Um, use the liturgy as a kind of a rallying call and 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 started to also criticize a bit like what Lefebvre did when he created the schism to to rail against anything after the Second Vatican Council and also attack our current pope very very harshly uh you know they, they won't even call him Pope Francis there are certain groups that keep calling him Bergoglio almost as to say, as if to say, he's not a real pope, you know, Pope Benedict, that's our pope. The thing is, when you look at church history, you don't get to choose your popes. Uh, you, you cannot pick and choose. You cannot say, we'll obey this pope and we will disobey this pope because I'm, I don't agree with what he does. It doesn't work like that in the church. That would also be, and you cannot also, you can't do the same with the, the councils. If a church council, you cannot pick and choose. You can't say, well, everything that came after Trent or before the Second Vatican Council, that's good. And the Second Vatican Council was an aberration and you know can't possibly be God's will. Thereby, you, you attack something fundamental in the Catholic faith. And that is that a council is, is, is led by the Holy Spirit that the Holy Father and the bishops are guided by the Holy Spirit. doesn't mean that they don't make mistakes. And we can talk about strategies and whether, you know, something is imprudent or not. But there are there is definitely leadership in the church that you cannot just ignore because you don't like what that leader says at this particular time. Um, and it, this is also, I think, part of... You have to, you have to be critical... And there's nothing wrong with that. You have to also voice your opinion if you think that the church is is not on the right track. The saints have done that in the past as well, for good reasons. But you can't just proclaim your own point of view as the only truth and as the true church. That is something you can only do as a whole, as a church. We are in this together. You cannot pick between mama and and, and, and papa. Uh, So... um, Yes, debate, dialogue, yes, but with respect. But the moment you start to um, basically deny the Pope his authority, then you're on a really slippery slope, and you have to be very careful that you're not heading towards a schism. That is, I think, what is currently on the mind of Pope Francis. He's like, well, uh, let me ask the bishop. So he sent out a questionnaire. Um, if you, you can all find that the, the questions online, and it's a very, very neutral uh, number of questions. You know, what are your experiences? This is celebrated in parishes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and apparently, based on the feedback, we haven't seen the feedback. That is 
not public. So we that's that's kind of the, a bit of the flaw of the process is that the transparency is not really there. I don't know if it's possible. And of course, the Pope can also act on his own impression. He, he can make a biased judgment. He's the Pope, for goodness sakes. <laughs> so it's not a mathematical equation, the decisions that he takes. He thinks that it's now... This is direct, the direction that we take. We, The church has given him this authority because it's based on the authority that Jesus gave to Peter, the first pope. And so um, the, the, um, the result of that, of that inquiry was that uh, in some cases, yes, the liturgy, the old liturgy was weaponized and it, it did lead people astray and led, led to people taking position against the teachings of Second Vatican Council, etc. Is this really a big percentage of the people that love the old mass? I don't know. I don't have data on that. Uh, I, I I don't know if the church has data on that. But it is definitely something that is um, is more than a hunch. Otherwise, the Pope wouldn't have taken this drastic decision. So what he decided, um, and I'm going to wrap things up. <laughs> That's this is one of the reasons that I last week I. I was hesitant to talk about it because it's kind of technical and kind of complicated and it's a nuanced discussion. But anyway, Pope Francis said, um, first of all, the Latin rite, so the the missal that was promulgated by Pope Paul VI after the Second Vatican Council, that is the expression, liturgical expression of the church. And the rest is exception. So it's not on parity. It's not, it's not, either this or that no we have one liturgy and then with certain exceptions there are different forms but these are exceptions and i i delegate it to the bishops to to judge whether you know something is wise or not there are some parameters that are universal and that is um you can there i re, pope francis revoked the general permission for priests. So if, if a priest wants to continue to celebrate with the old missal, he has to ask his bishop. If a new, newly ordained priest, so after this Novus Ordo, uh, Novus, after this, uh, um, the, uh, well, what's the term? The um, uh, motu proprio. Ah, too much Latin. <laughs> then the, the, the bishop should consult the Vatican. Uh, about this permission, whether or not to give it. Uh, so that's pretty restrictive. Uh, so it, it's not it's not true that it's completely abolished and it's no longer permitted, but it's uh, you it has to go through the bishop and potentially also through the Vatican. Then also the masses cannot be celebrated in parishes anymore. This is probably because of some feedback that he got from from situations where priests, because of their own personal preference, uh, uh, start stopped celebrating the mass according to the, you know, the the the, the regular uh, missal and all, and started replacing it by uh, the extraordinary form, which then of course that may not be for everyone. So I think that's a pastoral uh, reason that that Pope Francis said, you know, this we cannot just put this in parishes. The, the parishioners have the right to just celebrate the the. The liturgy of the of the entire church. Um, so we have to find other places for those that uh, want to celebrate mass according to the uh, the old ritual or the old rite. Um, and 
I think that's about it. At least that's the gist of the of the decision. Now, of course, reactions have been all over the place. People, some people, very understanding. Others, you know, there are reasons that are for and against. Um, it's not perhaps the most ideal situation to be in, but sometimes, you know, it's it's up to the Pope to make the decision and to weigh the various arguments, pro and contra. Um, and some people were just mad as hell, let's be honest. And it's uh, I've seen some of these people react on social media uh, and and with a with a venom, with a with a aggression that can only come from hurt, but it's still not something you want to do publicly. I, I think this is not the way that we treat each other in the church. Um, you can disagree, but you can still be respectful, and sometimes the respect was not there. So some of these people or individuals or groups kind of uh, showed that, that that maybe there was there were reasons to yeah, put an end to this and 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 uh, be more restrictive here because it reveals a certain a certain attitude, a certain mentality that is definitely not what you want to have as a church. But uh, it's it's. It's very nuanced, and I think this is different for me. I, I have good friends of mine that are really distraught by this and that really love the liturgy for what it is, uh, and, and not because they use it ideologically against the, the Novus Ordo or, 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 you know, or fully embracing the teachings of Vatican Council too and, 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 and love and pray for Pope Francis. But, well, it's, it's checkered. It's... Um, what I think, what I the the lesson that I take from this is, um, I have nothing against the the extraordinary form. Um, there are definitely, I've I've assisted to uh, to a few of these masses. Uh, I I see also why some changes were made. There are a lot of repetitions. I do think that the uh, the current missile is uh, in a certain way helps you to go more to the core is less less cluttered in a certain way but i can also see the the advantages of uh, um some of the rituals like for instance that when you prepare for mass there are certain prayers for that there is definitely a, a, a different rhythm to the old rite that you now or the old uh, missile that that we've lost i think but i also believe and i i speak from experience i believe that it is possible to celebrate the, the 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 common liturgy of the church and to celebrate mass using latin with lots of reverence with beauty something that can 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 touch you in your heart and i think that what i hope is that the people that feel that so, that they were robbed from something can help the church to rediscover the beauty of the missile as we use it in the Catholic Church, and I I lived through some pretty horrible liturgical times. And if it's up to me, I'm always for beauty and for a certain peace in liturgy, and to focus on what liturgy is all about. It's not about ideology. It's not about I'm for this pope or I'm for that pope. No, this is about my relationship with God, and this shouldn't be, of course, uh, a reason for for war or for anger or hatred this should be liturgy should be a place of beauty and i think it is possible also 
more than possible. I think the new liturgy is really helpful uh, to 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 find that to discover that beauty. But we have to help the church to <laughs> celebrate in a beautiful way and and give feedback to your parish, but do it in a respectful way. Uh, if if you if you just attack then other people will build walls and you will never get anywhere. But if you do it with love and patience, uh, and, but also with persistence and conviction, then I think we can heal a lot of wounds and liturgy can become, an, an which it is in, in many places, um, a place of beauty, a place of where you can encounter God and he can encounter you. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? I read a science fiction novel by Ray Bradbury. Actually, I listened to an audio recording of The Martian Chronicles. And uh, The Martian Chronicles, uh, Ray Bradbury is one of those uh, prolific science fiction writers. He's written a ton of kind of uh, vintage science fiction books. And they're pretty good stories, lots of short stories, very entertaining, but a little bit a bit old. I mean, nowadays, science fiction, modern science fiction is, is a bit more sophisticated. But what I like about it is also its simplicity in a certain way. Um, this is the kind of science fiction that I would read as a kid in, in, the, in the library. The Martian Chronicles talk about uh, the planet Mars... Uh, uh, being being basically uh, domesticated, <laughs> domesticated, <laughs> being invaded by by Earth, and uh, they find life, but they repress it. Actually, in fact, well, there's a disaster happening because of mankind's intervention on the planet of Mars, and then the Martians want revenge, and so that's the gist of the story. the The original Martian chronicles tell both sides of the story. And now I want to read it because the story that I listened to is a BBC4 production with a full cast featuring famous actors. Like one of the uh, women uh, is played by, or women characters is played by the actress who also plays the, uh, what is it, the, the girlfriend of uh, Captain America. Um, she had her own series on um, on Marvel, which I haven't watched yet but anyway so so some pretty big names very very cool audio production it really sounds like a um like an uh, like a radio play like um uh yeah these old-fashioned radio plays it's very entertaining and now that i'm sharing this with you i wondered did i already share this with you before uh, in, in the episode before if so my apologies i sometimes forget what i talk about in my shows but uh the downside of the bbc4 production is that it only tells the story from the perspective of the humans. Whereas what I am curious about is how do the Martians look at this story? Um, so I'm definitely going to check out the, um, the full book as well. But it was very entertaining. Makes me want to read more science fiction. The scientifically wonderful world of science. What sort of science? Welcome back, science friends. Now since we're already talking about traveling in our solar system. Um, we got another billionaire who uh, went to the stars and took with him an, uh, like an 80-something-year-old lady, his brother, wearing a cowboy hat for some reason. Maybe because he's also bald and they don't want to confuse him. 
I don't know. And uh, and then there was also this young boy, like 18 years old, and he's Dutch, and now he is called the youngest astronaut that the that uh, astronomy has ever known. Um, I watched the entire thing on YouTube live, and I was a little bit disappointed. <laughs> I it was a rocket, and it went up and up and up and up and up. And then the rocket separated from the capsule. And then the capsule was reaching the fringes of space. And then they were weightless for a few minutes. And then the whole thing went down again. And then, and then they landed. And that was it. I was like, if, if that, if tourists in space is looking like that, I don't think, I wonder why you would pay millions and millions to be weightless for. A minute or so. I mean, it was. I was like, literally, like, that's it. Oh, come on! You cannot call yourself an astronaut. That's not serious. You, you're basically strapped to a rocket. This is like fireworks. You know, you could you go up and then poof, and then you go down again. That's that's not really space exploration. <laughs> it's just a rocket. I, I I don't know. Maybe we're getting a little bit, you know, overfed with all these billionaires. There's another one still going up. Like, now it was Bezos, right? Who else is going up? So we had the guy from Virgin Atlantic. Then you got Bezos. Who else is going to go up? Mm, billionaires. I have to say I'm not really following all the space adventures of these guys. So Richard... Branson and Jeff Bezos have already gone up in space. Who is the third one? You're probably yelling his name. Elon Musk? Is that it? Is he still going? Yeah, probably. Oh, well. And hopefully that'll be the end of it, because really, I want to see something a little bit more exciting than just a rocket that goes up. Actually, I, I think that Branson had a cooler thing, because I don't know, I just like the whole thing of the kind of the gleamy, like, the, the shiny, shiny space shuttle, futuristic space shuttle that it was using. I thought it was cooler than a rocket. A rocket is like, yeah, it's just a rocket. Anyway, maybe I'm just spoiled. <laughs> we are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device and it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff, it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. I wanted to briefly talk about a topic that came up on the Discord server, which is a community of patrons that gathered there, and uh, they can ask me questions, and then I have a topic to talk about on the show. And it was about gaming technology. And it was the age-old question, what is better for, for video games, a PC or a console? And as you may have seen in the news, Valve, uh, who owns, it's a company who owns Steam, which is probably the biggest distribution platform of video games in the world. Um, Valve has just announced a portable uh, gaming console that is reminiscent of the Nintendo Switch. It's just a lot bigger and it's twice as heavy uh, but it can play almost any game in your Steam library it uses uh, 
a Linux-based operating system, and it uses uh, Wine and uh, some other tricks to translate code that was written for for Windows to the this particular Linux environment, which is a pretty big accomplishment. And apparently, it it runs very well because otherwise they wouldn't launch the project, uh, the, the the product. Uh, the The thing is pretty affordable. It's a uh, around 400 bucks, I think, so comparable to uh, an expensive Nintendo Switch. But of course, if you already have a big Steam library, it is so much cheaper than what Nintendo does because for every game on Nintendo, because you own the platform, you have to pay and it's pretty expensive. They monopolize the market. If you want to play Mario, then wow. Like, they never go on sale, these games. So for a lot of people, the Steam... Console is a a big a good proposition. And next to that, of course, you've got the Xbox uh, Series X and Series S, and then you've got the PlayStation Five. And I think that most of my listeners probably will have some form of device on which they play video games. Um, the downside of a PC, of course, is uh, you have to keep upgrading it. Otherwise, you can't you won't be able to play the newest games because the, the games always push the boundaries, and even a relatively low impact game like like uh valheim you know the viking game um if you try to play that on a 10 year old laptop it's gonna be hard it's you can only run it at very low settings whereas of course with a a console as long as it is made for that particular console generation then you're fine they will try to push the boundaries of that console but they will never go beyond what that console can do. So in a certain way, that is a more safe bet. But the downside is generations. You, you get a new PlayStation 5 and it's not backwards compatible. Well, a number of PlayStation 4 games can use a fork to play on the PlayStation 5. And, but it's, it's still, uh, you, you cannot play PlayStation 5 games on the PlayStation 4. You basically have to buy another machine. Same happened with PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 3. Microsoft tries it differently. They emphasize the backwards compatibility, um, which of course probably also because it's more Windows-based. So there is more communal code between all these different incarnations are, uh, of, the, of the machine. So the Xbox, the current Xbox, the newest one, can run any almost anything that the older Xbox iterations could run. So it's a more it's a safer investment if you want if you still have a big game collection uh, and you want to keep playing those games. Now the uh, Nintendo, it's a world in itself, of course, uh, wonderful games, but expensive and 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 mm, the best games are the Nintendo ones, um, so it's much less open to developers than uh, than other systems. And then, of course, you've got the PC and Steam. And you know, I I have hundreds and hundreds of games, and if I can just run that on the same PC, and the only thing I have to change every once in a while is a graphics card, then wow, yeah, I. I think that uh, there is a lot to say for the PC. The reason that I didn't order a Valve portable uh, console is that I barely ever play games on a console. I have the Switch. I, I've played a lot of the um, Animal Crossing, but then I have a number of games that I haven't even opened yet. So I, it's just that when I play video games, I, I, I want to sit in front of a big screen and I like the feel of a, you know, a controller or use the mouse and the, the the handheld consoles have tiny screens. Plus, for me, another thing 
was I the steam machine or the valve machine is uh, twice as heavy as the switch. So I'm thinking, you're going to hold it in your hands. I, even my iPad is pretty heavy after a while. So I can't really see myself sitting on a couch with something that heavy. Maybe I'm wrong, but I was like, mm, maybe I'm just going to skip this generation. Maybe the next version will be cheaper and uh, and and maybe light more lightweight. I do see a lot of potential for the technology that they used for VR if they can um, size down an entire you know PC uh, plus graphics card to a tiny chip then you know VR may also be able to benefit from that same type of technology and then of course there's one platform that I haven't mentioned yet and it's the Mac and the Mac is um, both a blessing and a curse you've got now in the newest operating system the ability to uh also run a number of um ios games and of course ios the the phones and the ipads they have a, a countless games and and some very very good ones it's just not very comfortable to play on a small screen and uh to play without a controller now all all that can, of course can be can be fixed you can uh, use a controller with bluetooth and then use that for your ipad but still it's a bit of a clunky situation. Um, so you could potentially run a, a lot of iOS games on, on your Mac, but it's still not a gaming machine. Um, there, the, the, it's also a, small, a relatively small target audience, so m not as much development happening on the Mac. Uh, maybe with emulation in the future, since the M1 is so powerful, and uh, may, maybe... Maybe there, maybe Steam can can you know create a uh, something for the Mac so that they can sell. I don't know. I don't know how it's gonna evolve. I personally, what I like is um, that is the backwards compatibility. I I love to be able to play uh, on my PC because all the games that I ever bought can still run almost like ninety nine percent. That, so that's definitely going to stay my main gaming machine. Um, plus, it's not that expensive to put a PC together. The second uh, console is the Xbox because of its backwards compatibility and because of the Ultimate Game Pass, which I am subscribed to. And that's basically a monthly fee. It's just like Netflix, and then you can play a whole bunch of very cool games. But you don't have those sudden you know, big chunks of money that you have to hand over in order to play a game. Uh, it's just a monthly fee. I like fixed fixed subscriptions. Um, you just have to make sure you don't have too many of them. That is what I wanted to share with you. Let me know your thoughts on Discord, if you're a patron or otherwise on social media. Again, my apologies for those of you that have tried to watch this uh, online and uh, were unable because twice the stream broke. I'm not even going to try anymore. Or am I? Silencio, Bruno! Of course you are going to try! Don't give up now! You can do it! Ha! I will soon have fiber internet! No more interruptions! Silencio, Bruno! Ah, santo pecorino! Ciao!